Thank you, and thank you, Pastor Mike, for your prayer for our family as we are trying to lay plans. The plan is to go to America for what would be term two of school for about, about eight weeks and pretty much constituting the months of May and June. We've not purchased our tickets yet. We're trying to uh, sort some of that out and find the best rates and so on, but we're at the verge where we really have to get that taken care of. And, and then uh, land transportation over there and an itinerary um, with the churches that we need to visit. We have several states. We'll travel from Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, um, Kentucky, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, possibly Texas. There are people we should see there, but it's so far out of the rest of the loop that I'm not sure yet, but we can fit it into those, those weeks. But uh, we haven't been to see our family. Um, we haven't seen any of our family in the flesh um, over there for six years. So we are kind of ready to go over there and see them. So do pray for us, please, as we uh, make those plans, that that will be an effective and special time. And um, sadly uh, for us all, uh, but very good for him, the plan is to leave Gilbert over there so that he can uh, pursue studies at Liberty University. So uh, praying for all of the logistics involved in that as well, if uh, God will provide for him. So uh, much to pray for for our family, and uh, we just appreciate that support. We've sung about God's holiness this morning, and that's a term that gets thrown around with sometimes not a lot of understanding, I think. Uh, in, In the secular world, sometimes it's used in perhaps kind of a derogatory sense. They may not really know what it means exactly, but they like to refer to, you know, somebody perhaps as a Christian as being someone who is holier than thou, okay, which obviously means they think they're just, they think they've got a superiority complex or they're more righteous or so on. Uh, or you might be familiar with the expressions like, well, you know, he's, you know, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, so, you know, a little too holy for this world, uh, that sort of thing. So those seem to be Uh, negative terms. Is it possible, though, if holiness is understood properly, is it possible for a person to be too holy? We get a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of a glimpse as to the holiness of God when we look at the incident in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm not preaching from that passage, but you might be familiar with the passage. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet is given a vision In this vision, he sees God in his temple with the train of his robe filling the temple and with these powerful angels, these powerful winged angels flying about and around God, crying back and forth in a a responsive echo, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Even the fact that there's three holies in that text is significant because in the, in the Hebrew way of writing, emphasis is given through repetition. So we in English might say, I learned this little poem when I, in school when I, was a, when I was a boy. Maybe you're familiar with it. Good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good becomes better and your better is best. Right? Good, better, best. And we talk about these things as, uh, you know, approaching the, super, the superior and the superlative. Well, it's that way in the Hebrew language. When something is said twice, that's for emphasis. If, it says, if it's repeated a third time, then that is the superlative. That's as extreme as it can be. And so here we have recorded for us in this scene, this, this crying out and describing God as being holy, holy, holy. 
He is the extreme measure, the full measure of holiness. And the response of the prophet should be telling to us because immediately he felt the contrast of his own character in the presence of this thrice holy God. And he felt completely undone. His response was, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees his not holiness in contrast or as a foil to God's absolute holiness. He felt immediate conviction and a desire to be cleansed. Well, interestingly, God's people are called to be holy, and he uses this expression, be holy as I am holy. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this possible? What does he really mean by that? What is God's real expectation when he says something like that? Because when we study theology, and even as we had discussion with Pastor Jesse a couple weeks ago in doing a doctrinal examination, we talked about the attributes of God. We talk about his um, communicable attributes and his uh, non-communicable attributes. And those that are non-communicable are things that are unique to God that, that we can't share in. He is omniscient, all-knowing, right? omnipresent, all-present all-powerful, omnipotent, right? We, we can't be, none of us can be any measure of that. But he is good, and he is loving, and he is truthful, and we can share in some of those characteristics of God. Well, apparently, holiness, which is one of the things that sets God apart, is something that is in some way communicable. We are able to apparently share in some to some degree in this. So it must not be an all-or-nothing absolute condition, while God is absolutely holy, we are called to share in some way in this, in this attribute and, or this characteristic. So let's have a look at this because we see this in Leviticus chapter 19 and 20. And I have to pick a few verses out of these two chapters right now just to create the framework. And next time we'll talk about the other details in those two chapters where God is giving instructions explicitly to Israel, that are ways in which they will demonstrate this holiness to which he has called them. As a people, these are ways that he wants them to be holy with very specific applications. We'll look at those next time. Right now, we're looking at this this general command to be holy like the Lord that he gives to the people of Israel, and we'll see that he gives to us as well today. So we'll begin by looking at the Old Testament as we continue through the book of Leviticus, and we're in Leviticus chapter 19, and looking at the first few verses of that, where God gives this central command to his people Israel. By the way, did you get the handout? If you didn't get one and you want one, would you pop your hand up, and if there's still another copy somewhere, somebody will try to run that to you. All right, great. So God gives this central command to his people Israel to be holy as I am holy. There's more to it, and and it's hard to separate these into particular verses, but I went for where the concentration of things is, so bear with me. Let's read first the first four verses of chapter 19, and then we'll pop down to chapter 20 and read just verse 7. Here we have this repetition of this this command, Leviticus 19.1, and the Lord... And again, you have all caps, I believe, in your, in your English text representing his personal name, Yahweh, every time. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. Those are a couple of those specific application points that we'll address more later. I, Yahweh, I am Yahweh, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am Yahweh, your God. Chapter 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh, your God. So what is this? This word holy, what does it mean? Well, it, is, it means sacred, set apart, unique, and in a moral sense, pure. So there's kind of a practical side and a more spiritual side. There's, a, there's an element of practicality where something is, where it's hard to really divide the two, but, but sacred or consecrated, set apart, different other. And then there's this aspect of being absolutely pure as well. So it's kind of two, maybe it's two sides of the same coin. It's, it's two aspects of, of this meaning of this term, holy. So God is asking his people to separate themselves in a way and to be unique and pure. God wanted his people's lives to reflect his unique character, which is why we see him continually attaching his own name to this command. He's saying, be holy as I am holy. I am holy. I want you to be similar. And he keeps saying again, I am Yahweh, your God. There were many gods, remember. This is a, a, a time and a place in history that just with just a massive pantheon of, of gods, invented deities by all the nations all around them. And the Israelites were constantly being bombarded by this influence and by the temptations to look toward these other ideas of deities. And God is again and again saying, I am Yahweh, which means I am the I am. I am the one who is eternal, non-created, no beginning, no ending, self-existent, unique from all others. I am the I am, and I am your God. And he keeps reminding them this. Follow my pattern. Mimic my character, because I am the I am, your God. This is what he repeats again to his people because he wants his people to live, to have their lives reflect his unique character. Now why? Because all these nations around them, with all the different deities that they worshipped, were wicked and immoral and cruel. And they attributed these actions, these characteristics, to their gods. And so they were following the patterns set for these ideas of these deities that they had created. Their gods were capricious. Their gods were jealous. Their gods were immoral. Their gods were greedy. Their gods were violent. And their societies reflected that. That re represented their whole set of values. Which is why God despised the Canaanites. And when he led his people into 
the Holy Land, he wanted them completely destroyed and driven out because their deeds were so evil. In fact, if you recall, when he spoke to Abraham 400 years before, he said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, but I'm going to give the, the people of the land 400 more years. That was opportunity for repentance and change, but instead, over 400 years, they became increasingly vile and violent and immoral and disgusting sacrificing their children on the altars of false gods, creating, performing acts of supposed worship in public orgies. And so God wants his people to be obviously different because he wants not just for them, but for all the other onlooking nations to see what is so different about the one true and living God. His character is entirely different. He is pure. He is holy. He is a loving God. He is a moral God. He is not a capricious God. He loves his people and he wants what's best for his people. His rules for his society are rules that represent a, a, a value of human life and of private property and of precious relationships that should not be violated and of the sanctity and the sacredness of, of sex within a marriage relationship. These are the characteristics of this God, and he wants everyone to know it. And so he wants his people to reflect his character among all of the nations amongst whom they lived at that time. So he said, be holy as I am holy. This is not some, some arbitrary uh, spiritualistic standard of you know, of, of make yourself odd, wear a white robe and walk around with a somber face, never laugh at a joke, never you know, enjoy you know, the fun things of life. That's not what holiness is. Holiness, as we'll see as we continue the study, is following God's order of life, which is really what is best for those who are living that way. And it just simply reflects his character, his goodness, his love, his patience. So he wants his people to have lives that reflect his unique character. Then there's the second part that we keep seeing repeated through here. He says, be holy as I am holy. And then he tacks this on. I am Yahweh your God. And to paraphrase, because he says it kind of a different way in different parts of the verse. Basically, who sanctified you? I am Yahweh, your God, who sanctified you. To sanctify is kind of the other side of, of holiness. Holiness is kind of a state of being. Sanctification is making holy. Making sacred or set apart or unique or pure. It's the same root in the, in the Latin where we get these, you know, these words that we that we use to represent these Hebrew words, which are entirely different. Uh, but it's the same root. The, uh, when, when people sing in the, in the Latin uh, or read the uh, Isaiah text, it's sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. It's holy, holy, holy. It's that same, that same root to sanctify, sanctify. Okay? So to make holy, to make separate, to make unique, to set apart, to consecrate. So that's what God says, I am Yahweh your God who sanctified you. 
Let's look at these other verses then. So Leviticus 19, uh, verse 36b, that's kind of the bookend of this, of this first chapter of chapter 19. It says at the beginning, be holy, for I, uh, the Lord, your God, am holy. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, you see, he's the one who rescued them. He based his his command on his own identity and his character and his work of saving his people. He is the God who saved them from slavery and adopted them as his own people. He brought them by the, he delivered them by the power of his own hand. And you remember the whole uh, account of, of the plagues that he brought against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It was by the power of his hand that he delivered them from slavery. And he brought them out to this, to this place at Mount Sinai where he said, now, I have rescued you. I have called you out from among the Egyptians. I've called you out from their false worship, from all of their evil practice, from the abuse, from slavery. And now you will be my people and I will be your God. He adopted them. He sanctified them. He set them apart. He drew them out from all the other nations, particularly out from the Egyptians, and said, you are mine. So he keeps reminding them of these things. He has a right to call upon them to reflect his character, to live according to his code, because he is the God who saved them and adopted them with power and with love. We're reminded of Leviticus 11, uh, verses 44 and 45. So just you know, backing up a little bit, where we first saw in this, in this book, this call of God at the beginning of this the expansion on the code of the Mosaic law, Leviticus 11, 44, 45, he says, I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, right? There's that, that sanctifying, that setting yourself apart. Consecrate yourselves. That's holiness, making holy. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Sorry, I was reading, <laughs> skipped reading the wrong part of that second part of the verse. Sorry. I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves. And this was one of the early applications with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Verse 45, for I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. That was earlier in the book, Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45. So we see this is a central command, and it's repeated throughout the book of Leviticus. I believe it's 16 times where we have this be holy, for I am holy. And again and again, he attaches this rationale for the command. I'm Yahweh, your God. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who set you apart. I sanctified you. I rescued you from Egypt. I've adopted you as my own. So that explains all the other code. When we look at those other particulars, and the the next time that we come to this text, we'll see all of these rules that may seem odd to us, and some of them today, uh, they, they might seem odd. They made sense in their context in particular, you might see, you know, the way that you know, certain things are handled. You go, well, what's the spiritual significance of that? Well, a lot had to do with the situation in which they were living and the behavior and the practices and the significance given to those things by the nations around them. And God wants to distinguish his people from among the other nations 
so that he can be distinguished from all the other gods, so that the people will turn to worship the one true and living God, the only one who loves them, the only one who's any good for them. So his demands are gracious. But what does that have to do with us? We don't live by that code, do we? We don't study the Mosaic law to form our practice according to every jot and tittle of those, of those instructions. Some of them, we've observed, represent God's character and his values throughout the ages. Some of them are universal. The last time we talked about some things that he talked about to Adam and Eve before, and he talked to people in the New Testament before Jesus quoted those same things, and so we know that they are uh, superior to the Mosaic law and universal principles, timeless. There are things like that. Well, there are parts of the code that, that were fulfilled in Christ and and no longer necessary for us in the church today. So we look at some of the things that we will look at in, in chapters 19 and 20 and ask ourselves, well, what, what does this mean for us? You know, do we apply all of these rules? Well, we can take this principle from it. This overarching framework that God gave to Israel, and we'll see that he repeats for us to the church today, is that we are called to be holy as he is holy. We are called to be different set apart. So let's look at God's consecrating call to his people, the church. We saw in the Old Testament God's central command to his people, Israel. And now we'll look at God's consecrating call to his people, the church. This is the New Testament era of God's people. Now, I don't want to get down a long theological bunny trail, but just to be clear about our understanding of Scripture, we think it's quite clear God gave eternal promises to Abraham in regard to national Israel, his descendants through his son Isaac and through his son Jacob. A loud voice. The church today... Ooh, we're back. Yes? All right. The church today is... We say we are God's people, and that is true. Israel was God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and through them he revealed himself and his Messiah to the world. Jesus came, and it became very clear uh, through Jesus' ministry and even through his teaching that it was always God's intent for all the nations to recognize him as their God. The Israelites were his, kind of his missionaries of the Old Testament, and the church's missionaries of the New Testament, where he made it very clear that anyone can come through Jesus Christ. And so the church today is made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It's a, an expansion, but not a replacement. God's promises to national Israel that are nationally oriented do not go away. But we are, as Paul explains, grafted in, like a, like a branch taken from another tree, grafted into that tree. We share in many of the blessings and promises that God gave to Israel, we who are Gentile believers. So we are his people today, the church, and that includes Jewish people as well as Gentile people. So consecrating, we've already talked about that word, that setting apart, that sanctifying, that making holy. We are charged to consecrate ourselves as his people. Let's look at this. So here's, here's God's command to, the new, to his church in the New Testament. Be holy, and this is the, this is the way it is in, in Matthew, be holy as the Father is holy. So this is uh, Jesus charging his followers 
And whenever he used the Father, he made it very clear in a number of contexts, they all knew that he meant God the Father. So he's saying, be holy as the Father is holy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and, and that's the last verse of chapter 5, and then into the first verse of chapter 6. We see this record in Matthew. You therefore must be perfect, depending on your translation, I have holy. Must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, why do I include that next verse? Well, first of all, again, the holiness, while we cannot be absolutely pure like God in the moral sense, we are called to reach a certain standard. We can live consecrated lives that reflect his character. We, this is the same call for the church today, really, as it was for the Israelites in the Old Testament era. We are called to reflect God's character to the world around us, that people might know the one true and living God. We looked last week at the, at the call um, in First Peter that, that we should let people see our good works, that they would glorify our Father in heaven. So we are called to be holy as the Father is holy. Cannot be absolutely pure like God, but we can live consecrated or set apart lives that reflect his character. Chapter 6, verse 1. This gets into a little bit of the balancing side of application. And I wanted to include this because we've probably all encountered the person who attempts to appear holy and make sure everyone knows it. That is not something we are called to. There are those individuals who like to highlight everyone else's faults, all their failures, and appear to be living at a higher standard than everyone else. And it's kind of like the Pharisees you know, and their behavior in public, where they, where they set up additional rituals that were easy enough for them to follow so that everyone else could look at them as being superior. So we are not called to call attention to ourselves. That is not the point of the holiness to which we are called. It is not so that people can go, oh, holy person. I mean, there's a phoniness in that that doesn't glorify God. If we are flaunting our superiority as though we are being holy like God, well, that's just about as good as the person who says, I am extremely humble. I am probably the most humble person that you will ever meet in your life. It's something that, like, by its display or by its claim, destroys itself. Right? A person who's truly holy is going to reflect God's character. God's character is honest, faithful, loving, good, patient, always seeking redemption for the person who has failed. True holiness should be extremely attractive, and it doesn't have to promote itself, or it's not genuine. So we, so we see this balancing uh, instruction here in chapter 6, verse 1 of, of Matthew. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. God will not be impressed if all you're trying to do is impress other people. 
So that's not true holiness. So we are called to be like God, called to be holy as our Father is holy, but not to put on a display for others in such a way that calls attention to ourselves, that promotes ourselves. That's not true holiness. But here's the second part for us. Just as for, the, for Israel is, be holy as I am holy, I am Yahweh your God who sanctified you. Here we have, be holy as the Father is holy, he is the God who saved you. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we see, once again, Peter talking about the practical Christian life in a world that is, makes it difficult sometimes. First Peter 1, verses 14 through 19, says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. You see, there's a real practicality to the holiness. It's a being different from the world around you. Since it is written, and here he quotes the Leviticus passage that we're studying. He quotes it, he says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So so there is an application for us today as the church in the New Testament era to obey this, this call of God for his people. To be holy as he is holy. It's repeated for us here in the New Testament. Verse 17, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a reference to our not being in heaven. Knowing that you were ransomed. You were purchased. Just as, as God by his powerful hand by the display of his power and his love through the, uh, through the plagues in Egypt, and delivered his people and claimed them for himself. Here Peter is saying, we likewise have been ransomed. We have been rescued. We've been purchased by this loving Heavenly Father. It says, knowing, verse 18, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. These things that we consider so important in this life, they so distract us today. Ooh, money. And he's saying, no, nothing so insignificant as money. Nothing so insignificant as gold and silver. We were purchased not with perishable things like this, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are purchased with this, this, by this price that is so immeasurable, that is, that just cannot be, do any of you remember, I don't know, it was probably here in Australia, I don't know, I know it was in America, there was a series of, of, I think it was Visa credit cards, you know, where it says something like, you know, um, Range Rover, you know, $45,000, ching, you know. And, you know, vacation spot, you know, $5,000, cha-ching. Time away, priceless. You know, just these things, oh, that costs that much, that costs that much. Okay, your credit card will take care of that. Oh, but it really, what it really purchases for you is priceless. You know, you can't put a value on it. Well, here we have uh, kind of that principle here. Uh, there are many things that people strive for, many things that people pay wealth for, uh, there are, there are all kinds of 
sacrifices made in the Old Testament. But those are all perishable things. Those are all lesser things. And it's not that kind of price that was paid for us. It's not such insignificant things, though. I mean, by our standards, by human standards, they might seem like a great deal. But in God's economy, those are worthless compared to the value of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his willingness to take the to bear the, the weight of the guilt and the Father's judgment toward that guilt on himself so that God could be both just, as Romans 3 tells us, he might be both just and the justifier. Jesus paid the price that, that was the propitiation, the satisfaction for God the Father's justice against sin. It satisfied his wrath for all those who embraced that for himself. So we have been purchased with this great gift, this great price that is beyond measure. The price paid for our freedom is beyond measure. So I might have missed a point in explicit statement. So let's go back for your sake of your outline. We were saved from Satan and the judgment of our sin by the power of the cross. Just as the Israelites were saved by the power of God through the plagues, we are saved from Satan, from the slavery to his evil influence, and from the judgment for our sin by the power of the cross. And the price paid for our freedom is beyond measure. So, our lives should demonstrate unending gratitude. Just as God called the Israelites to himself at Mount Sinai and said, now I have rescued you and I have, I have embraced you as my people. You will be my people. I will be your God. And therefore, he keeps repeating this. I am Yahweh your God. I'm the one who saved you. Live this way. He had a right, he had a claim on them to dictate how they should live that they might reflect his character to the world around them. He had every right to do that. And he does for us as well. We've been purchased at such high a price that it is only right for us who have been the beneficiaries of God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we should adjust our living, that we should submit our will that we should make different choices in our lives so that we will be holy. What does that mean? Different. We have a culture that is constantly moving further and further away from God, rejecting everything about his character, everything about his, his goodness and his holiness. Every standard that God has set, this world is actively and aggressively resisting and pulling further and further away. And if we are God's people, purchased at such a high price, our lives should look different than that. We should not be moving in the same direction as all the people around us. Again, that doesn't mean that we walk around flaunting, you know, trying to be as odd as we can possibly be, or trying to be as offensive as we can possibly be. That's not what God calls us to, Matthew 6.1. But we will be different. We will make different choices. We will not go to some of the parties that our friends are going to because of what's happening there. We might really love those people. We might really care about those people. We may not be afraid that we're going to be pulled off into the wrong thing. But how will they know 
that you have different values, how will they know that you are a child of the one true and living holy God if you just do all the same things that they do? Our lives should be different, not to be odd, not to flaunt our own superiority, but if we are following God's way, if we are looking at the principles and the instructions that God has given us in his word, and we are letting those dictate the decisions of our lives day after day, without trying, we're going to be odd. Without trying, we're going to be different. We will be seen as set apart, as consecrated, as holy. But we can do that as graciously as possible by just simply obeying God. Let the chips fall where they may. Let people decide what they want to about us. Yes, in some circles, we will become less popular. Some people will reject us. Some people will accuse us of being holier than thou. But we are responsible to God to be obedient and to live in a way that acknowledges his claim on our lives. And so there, that brings us to our so what points of this message. To summarize the implications of these things, we who have been rescued by Jesus Christ from the power of sin and Satan, who have been claimed by the Father as his own cherished people, and who have been granted eternal life with him, we cannot live selfish and willfully autonomous lives. We cannot say... It's my life, my choice, I'll do what I want. We just can't do that. <laughs> you, know, you know I love music, and I love a wide range of music. And, and one, of the, one of these great, catchy songs that you just feel like belting out if it comes on the radio. Of course, many of you may not listen to the radio stations where this would ever come on, but I do. I listen to oldies. And when old Frankie Blue Eyes... Frank, Frank Sinatra comes on singing. Somebody know the song, right? His big declaration in this song. I did it my way. And he ended up in hell as a result. I'm sorry, but he rejected God's way. And so he received God's wrath. We cannot live like that. Okay? It might be a great catchy song. It might sound powerful. It might be a great power ballad that you want to belt out in the car. But we can't live that way. We cannot embrace that value that says, I'll do it my way. We've been purchased at so high a price. We've been called to be holy as our Father is holy. Secondly, and continuing the thought, God has a claim on us. And we must learn to live in a manner that reflects, number one, his unique character as holy and good and gracious and loving, true God. And secondly, we must learn to live in a manner that reflects the great price he paid to save and sanctify us, to set us apart as his own children. So we need to reflect on 1 Corinthians perhaps more regularly, make it a part of our internal 
dialogue, the, the thing that guides our decisions. 1 Corinthians 6, second part of the verse, and into uh, 6.19, the second part of the verse, and into verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Will you, will you read that out with, with me? Say it out loud. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Tell yourself this. Day in and day out. I have to do this. I need to do this more. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I need to glorify God in my body. The practical way in which I live each and every day needs to reflect the fact that I have been, been bought at so high a price. I am not my own. It is not my own life to live. I cannot do it my way. I must learn to do it God's way. I need to follow his direction and his instruction. How can I know what that is? Well, see, there's this book. It's full of revelation of God's character and his design and his plans and his will for us. If I don't read it, I'll live ignorantly and I will not be living God's way. So that's a place to start. How to live God's way, not your own way. Get to know God through his word. Get to know his true character. You know, he's, he's constantly misrepresented in our culture. So how do you know the true God? You read his, his own re revealed word. That's how you know what he's really like. And you'll find that he's not what some people seem to think he is. He's not capricious. He's not this, you know, vengeful God or this God who's always just trying to spoil your fun. He's a, he's a wonderful, holy, loving, faithful, gracious God. To know him is to love him. So we need to get to know him better through his word. And as we do, we need to submit ourselves to his will. Let's pray that he will help us do that. Father, you have revealed yourself to your people, your people Israel, as we see in the Old Testament, and to us, your people, the church, in this day and age, in the New Testament, as well as the Old. We see your character. We see what you value. And we hear this call throughout the ages to your people to live in a way that reflects your character. And that reflects the fact that we have been rescued by your hand. That we have been adopted into your family. That you have chosen to love and bless us. And you have given us your loving instruction as to how to live in a way that is best for us. And that will point other people to you as well. That they might also experience what is best. That they might come to know you. And to be adopted by you. And to have the promise of eternal life. Father, help us to be good representatives in the way that we live. Help us, just draw us to your word, please. Build a, a growing hunger in each one of our hearts, each one of our souls, to spend more time in your word, not as an act of, of religiousness or duty, not as though it's going to impress you. But Father, just give us the hunger for your word that we might come to know you more rightly, more truly, more intimately, that we might 
as a result, just love you more and desire to live in the way that you have, that you have designed for us to live. So that we can experience the goodness and grace that you have for us as your children. And that others will then observe it and that they will be drawn to you. That they will observe our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That they might come to know what is best for them. That they might have eternal life. Help us to be faithful in these things. We, we have so many influences working against us. Our own fallen flesh. Our, our, our own evil desires. And, and this whole society around us that is just constantly trying to drag people in the opposite direction uh, from you and from your holiness. Father, strengthen our spirit by your spirit. Give us roots through our time in your word that we will be strong and withstand the, the tempests of society around us and of these temptations that would try to draw us away. That we might just live the rich and spiritually fruitful life of fellowship with you, that others might see it. We pray in Jesus' name.